You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you guys doing? Doing great, man. Happy to be on here again. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'm just looking back at it now. It was, uh, wow, this is amazing because every time I do this, I'm like July 5th, 2002. Maybe 2022. Yeah, maybe 22. Or sorry, <laughs> 2020. But does that make sense to you guys? Does it seem like it's been over a year? Well, now that you mention it, uh, I guess it does. But yeah, it's crazy how time flies, huh? Yeah, there you go. So we talked a really cool episode on surf perch. Um, that was a really awesome episode. And I think it's one of those species that's out there that's, you know, that's not steelhead, that's not salmon. But the cool thing, I think, as you guys are probably realizing, and I know around the country, is the more we get in this, the more you hear about these other species. Yeah, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback from the episode. Like a lot of people calling the shop and coming in is like, hey, we heard that episode. I'd really like to know more about that. And then been able to help set people up and put together some rod reel and line combos for people going to give it a shot. Yeah. So that's the great thing about it. And I think today we're going to do a little more of that where we, we talk a little about maybe some alternative species that people aren't thinking about. You know, I think maybe people hear about some of this, but they don't know how to do it. So you know, you guys are obviously a resource for the OP. I mean, one of those hot spots. I always think of, you know, steelhead and just anatomous fish. I mean, that's right. That's what you guys do. But you got a lot of other resources. So we're going to dig into that today. But um, just give us an update. Since July 5th, 2022, what's been going on? Give us the quick update on the shop and you guys. And feel free as we're doing this, you guys. I'm not sure. I'm just going to let you guys choose who wants to chat because we got, you know, basically, um, is it? it's just you two you guys at the shop still, right? Uh, we got a few other people, um, but right now it is just the two of us here. But we've got two other guys that work, and then we've also got uh, Curtis, who's our guide. But yeah, it's it's really mainly the two of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me start this off as you guys are thinking about that, because I want to take us back to something, Ed, that we did that was really cool. Um, I went up there, and you took me out. We jumped in, the, got an early morning, and uh, headed down in the, the vehicle. And uh, we went in, and we fished. Um, <laughs> You know, we fished a river. Let's talk about that. Let's start there just because I think that that was pretty cool. Um, do we want to talk about, I'm not sure how you guys feel about rivers. Is that something where there's enough pressure so you, you guys don't like to talk about specifics on which rivers you're fishing or how's that look? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's kind of um, a contentious issue when you're talking about uh, specific locations and putting them on the internet. You know, we've all seen it happen. Uh, and it's really, these places are not hard to find if you've got any kind of inclination towards this uh, pursuit. It's pretty easy to find these places and you can always just show up or call us and we'll tell you where it is. But it just, uh, you know, just seeing what the internet does to places, it's... Uh, 
And let's talk about that. I, I know I'm starting off kind of all over the place, but this is kind of how I love to roll. Um, so you guys had this thing. Talk about, and Kyle, I saw that. I think it was you with the kind of the viral. This is kind of that internet thing. You had a viral. Was it a real Instagram reel, right? Yeah. What was that? Is that still viral out there? Talk about how that happened. It just was one of those things where I, we'd all love the A-Rex Flexi Stripper. And uh, I finally got one after trying a bunch of different ones. And I was out fishing with uh, Josh, one of the guys who works here part-time. And I was loving it. I was like, hey, like, take a quick video of this. It might be interesting to like show people how it works. And just made a cast, made a quick reel, didn't really think much of it. And then it got like fifteen to 30,000 views a day. Now it's well over a million views. Wow. Just kind of out of nowhere, the algorithm just happened to like that particular video and put it in the right place. And There you go. That's one of those things where, and, and sometimes we all sit here and we wonder like, wow, yeah, the algorithms, you know, what the heck's going on? How do you figure it out? And sometimes you can't really, right? You just say, hey, that's just the way it is. I maybe can't replicate that. Is that kind of how you guys feel? Oh, definitely. And like, we'll put a bunch of time and effort into a reel we think is going to be really cool. And then it just doesn't really get noticed. And then something quick and easy just blows up. Yeah, it's really funny how I'll spend, you know, an entire day editing a reel, making sure the music matchups perfectly to get maybe a thousand views. And then Kyle goes out and makes one cast. And then the end of it, crazy about it. So, yeah, one cast can change your life. One cast can change your life. <laughs> right. Right. It was pretty cool. I will we'll put a link in the show notes to that. And it was pretty cool because it was like a, a slow motion. And the cool thing was, is, I mean, it was like a nice cast i mean I, casting is can be a struggle for a lot of people but it looked like you just shot the whole line out it was just a slow-mo and it went out was that the cast was it a um like one of your most epic casts ever no it was pretty standard beach cast just just a regular saturday for kyle yeah there you go there you go awesome all right well so we have that going in like we said the river that we fished ed was it was just a great day you know i mean yeah, that really was a very special day. You know, we um, started early, as you got to do in um, most popular public waters. Uh, it was one of the coldest days of fishing I've ever had. Mm. I remember we were kicking ice sheets to get into the river that morning. That was pretty uh, different, you know. But yeah, it's just a, a great day. And it, what really stands out is that fish that we ended up getting. And I say we ended up getting because it was kind of a, a team effort. Yeah. Um, you know, you were fishing through and you yelled out that you got a bite. And I remember I was actually um, out on the bank relieving myself, <laughs> kind of freaking out. Um, you know, might have gotten some uh, non water on my waders from the excitement. And uh, then we went through there, uh, felt another bite. And it's like, well, that doesn't quite feel like a trout. And then finally on the third pass, felt that bite and just swung as hard as I could. And we ended up getting that nice steelhead on uh, what I believe was a 19 degree day. So that was super fun. I wish you would have gotten it since you came off this way. But, uh, you know, at least we got to her and that was a very cool fish. Yeah, it was great. I mean, that's the thing. I'm at the point, you know, it's just I loved, you know, a fish or even not a fish, just the experience that day. That river was beautiful and we had a great day and uh, it was cool seeing you hook up. And that's one of those things about the steel. That's like the tip. It's one of those tips. You know, you get this touch. And I mean, what's your thinking there? How do you know that that was why were you thinking that was a steelhead and not a trout that day? Um, well, mainly because uh, of the time of year, you know, we're in the dead middle of winter. And uh, just it was so cold, and it's so rare to catch a trout in that particular river during that time of year. Um, you know, it could have been maybe a bull trout or, or a cutthroat, but it really was just, you know, 
Not to mention the fact that we've already caught a few steelhead in that spot um, earlier that year or this year. So it just seemed like it. But it was, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I haven't seen that happen many times where you get just such a willing player in the wintertime that's willing to bite the fly so many times but not quite smash it. That that was really interesting. I've told that story a lot, actually. Yeah, I love that. I love that story. Yeah, we definitely had a little little player there. Well, let's go back. Let's leave the steelhead chat for, you know, maybe later or another time. I want to talk about maybe just take it through the OP, you know, the Olympic Peninsula. I mean, it's this famous place. You guys are in one of these places, I think, you know, for sure around North America that, you know, it's just one of those destinations. But it's not just steelhead. You guys have a lot going. So let's take us through maybe... Maybe we start with the year, you know, through the year, and we think of now, you know, we're in the summertime, which is kind of an interesting time, right? July, August, September, which is peak of, I'm guessing there's a lot of tourists, and because you're also near a national park, right? Talk about, talk about how, what's going on now. What's keeping you guys busy? Well, right now, like, it is the peak of tourist season. Our park gets well over a million visitors a year, and a lot of times people will come into the shop either, you know, from out of state that fly fish quite a bit or don't fish and are just kind of curious about it. And uh, it's obviously not the season that we're known for, but there's still plenty of options and they just maybe want to go out for a couple hours and explore the park or places near the park and do some fishing. And, you know, there's quite a few options for that. There's, I can't even count how many different like Alpine lakes you can hike to. There's lowland lakes, there's beach fishing for cutthroat on odd years, late July through August. There's pink salmon that are available off the beach. There's largemouth bass. There's, smaller streams up in the park off of a lot of the bigger rivers that right now, unfortunately are closed. You know, there's quite a few different options depending on what you're looking for, like how much time you have or how far you're willing to travel. There's a little bit of something for everybody. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I had somebody recently tell me, I think they were another guide and and they were talking about when they go out with another guide and what they tell them, they say, Hey, where would you go on your day off? So I'm going to ask you guys that what's the what would you be fishing for this time of year, just in summer in general on your day off? What, what are you guys going for? Well, it's, uh, you know, typically in the summertime, uh, the sea run cutthroat or the coastal cutthroat um, kind of rules the uh, the roost around here just because they're such a fun fish. And they are um, they can be kind of hit or miss. Like our local beaches that are closest to us. They're not as consistent as some of the more um, like inland or not inland, but more towards Puget Sound beaches. Uh, it seems like the beaches here on the Strait of Juan de Fuca, the fish just migrate a lot. So you'll go the one day and you'll you know you'll catch twenty trout, and then then you'll go back three more times. There'll be nothing, and then you know finally you go back again and you'll catch a trout and a salmon, and then five more trout, and it's just uh, so uh, timing is definitely very important around here. One thing that I would say about the Olympic Peninsula is that. Um, the uh, places that are really, um, you know, you catch a really special fish in, you'll go a lot of times and catch nothing. And then finally, after a hundred times you fish this spot, you'll go there and you'll catch, you know, a fish of a lifetime. I know that's a pretty worn out term, but it really is. There is, uh, for most of the year, there is an opportunity at catching a really special fish of many different species around here. So you got to put your time, I mean, it's like anything, you got to put your time in and learn, you know, learn the area. I mean, what's your recommendation? Obviously, you guys are a great resource there. People can call you or come in the shop. But what is the recommendation? If somebody wants to really learn about, say, sea run cutties or any of these species, what is the easiest way? Are there books on the OP? Are there resources? Where do you guys start out? There's a handful of books, some older, some newer. 
the main thing is like pretty much all the beaches around here all the way probably from Port Angeles east will at some point hold cutthroat. The main thing is just like cover water and keep your fly in the water. Like if it looks like a likely spot for a cutthroat, chances are at some point there will be some there. Right. And you have tides too, right? I mean, there's a big, there's a lot of thing factors in here. There's different things. So if you catch a fish one day, you kind of want to make sure to mark all the environmental variable. It's kind of, so you know what's going on. Is that how you guys do it? For the most part, but it'll also surprise you. Like I've gone to a beach on, you know, this time of day, this tide, this weather and done amazingly well. And then I'll find another day with like repeat conditions and go back and won't see a single sign of life. Or I'll go out and be like, okay, I have, you know, free time this morning. It's not ideal conditions. It's not an ideal tide. And I'll have the best day of cutthroat fishing I've ever had. The main thing is like, even if it doesn't look the way you want it to, just go fish it anyway. Like you never know. A lot of times it can just be dumb luck. It's a little unpredictable. Like I, I fished a beach the morning of 4th of July, and I think I landed a dozen cutthroat and probably lost 10 more. And then I went back out actually this morning to the same beach, pretty similar conditions, and I got one bite. Right, right. So you just got to fit. What does it look like? I mean, because you guys are, you know, Port Angeles is on the northern tip of the national part up there, and you got beaches all over the place. You got on the ocean side. Are all those beaches potential? Like, could you just find some saltwater connection beach and, and, and go for it? Or are there certain areas more? More or less. There are some that have proven to be more productive than others. And it definitely helps if you find a beach in near proximity to some sort of river or creek mouth or some sort of estuary water. But I mean, they will be everywhere. I've like, there's what we have here called the Olympic Discovery Trail, which stretches, I think, 60 miles. And a lot of it runs right through downtown Port Angeles, right along the coastline. And you'll walk that and just keep your eye on the water. And like, you'll see fish throughout that whole trail. And that's like a good way to just go search, like, you know, take an afternoon walk and bring your rod with you. And if you see, you know, birds or bait, a good chance they'll be cut right around. A lot of times you'll see them breaking the surface or jumping. And it's just right place, right time. Yeah. So what are those cutthroat? Yeah. What are they doing? So they're kind of, yeah, I guess they're like anything they're feeding. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're out there throughout and they come into the shoreline just for feeding. Is that kind of what they're doing before they're, because eventually most of these fish are heading up into the freshwater, right? At some point. Yeah. Generally like mid, late fall, they'll start pushing back up in the rivers. And I think the earliest around here I've found them is March and it's super hit or miss, but they're definitely around year round. We know a couple of people that love fishing for them in the dead of winter. But it seems, at least this year, it didn't start to get kind of consistent until June. And then I've had good luck through the end of October. Oh, okay. And that's all in salt. And then eventually, do you guys hit? I mean, is it worth going eventually into the rivers? Or is that by that the fall, are you thinking more thinking steelhead and stuff? It's definitely worth it, especially if you just are a trout fisherman and that's what you love to do. Like September, October, November can be a great time on the rivers, especially, you know, get away from the crowds looking for fall salmon and just trout fish, it can be really good because a lot of the trout are going to be a little bit bigger and a little bit more aggressive from being in the salt water. So the streamer fishing can be fantastic. Mm, okay. Yeah. That, and uh, Typically in the fall, you know, most of the people will be out looking for salmon and in, on most of the rivers in this area, there's a uh, uh, certain stretches of the river where you can actually target salmon and uh, you know, harvest ember, uh, whatever, but actually, you know, where it's allowed to target salmon 
and there will be a lot of places, uh, you know, upstream of the salmon zone um, where the cutthroat fishing is actually really, really great. But most people are out looking for salmon. So you'll typically have it pretty much to yourself because everybody else is out after, you know, either coho or kings. But if you're out there with your uh, five or six weight and some streamers, you can have a great day and not see anybody else, which is uh, pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. So coho or kings, and for the salmon, uh, remind me again up there, what are... Are people fly fishing for all the salmon species, or how does that look? Yeah, so we get all five species of Pacific salmon here on the peninsula. You know, in different, uh, you know, we don't get a whole lot of chums really. Uh, but on the east side of the peninsula, there's definitely places where you you can have uh, some just amazing fishing for chums. But other than that, every species of salmon is you know about as plentiful as you can get in lower forty eight. Right. So you can go up there and actually, I mean, it's probably not, I always compare it, go back to the Alaska, you know, whatever thing, but, and even that, right. Chinook numbers have taken a dip up there too, but it feels like that's one of the places, right. Where you've got everything, but you're saying where you guys are at, you can catch everything on a fly as well. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. That's really cool. And, and do you guys do that? Is that something every year you're thinking, okay, I got the coho Chinook, you know, sockeye, or you're thinking about how you're going to focus on that? Or is that something that you, it depends on numbers and things like that? Uh, well, everybody's got their, uh, you know, their own pet species. So that, you know, the things that you kind of get excited about and plan your re- year around. What's your pet out of the five salmon? What's your pet species? Oh, for me personally, it's definitely the kings. You know, you just cannot beat the, uh, the the bites that you get and the fights and just how strong and powerful they are. There's just not, you know, the only thing I think comes even close to the king salmon is a steelhead, which is my other pet fish, uh, which, you know, unfortunately, they're the ones that are in the uh, most trouble, but they're just so special. Um, you know, I don't even uh, keep them or anything. I just like to look at them and they're just such an uh, just amazing creature yep yeah it is i think that it's hard not to on this you know on any of these to not talk about steelhead just go because it's such it's one of my species as well you know yeah i know and it's you know ultimately everything ends up coming around with the steelhead but the uh, you know i think king salmon are every bit as good of a game fish as uh, steelhead are and they do bite remarkably well on flies uh, yeah, you just got to know, uh, you know, where to find them and how to present to them. And if you do it enough, you will figure it out and you will get them. When you're fishing for kings, and we've done a few episodes up, like I said, kind of Alaska stuff. But when you're fishing there, are you fishing similar areas as the steelhead? Or are you really just looking for more of those deep runs? Is it, or is it just totally different than where you'd be hitting steelhead? No, not really. Here, though, you typically fish the same areas, you know, the same spots where you catch steelhead, you will catch kings in. You know, maybe sometimes uh, the conditions will be different because it's a different time of year. Um, so you might have higher water, uh, you know, warmer water, but it's typically in the same areas. You know, it's uh, most of these anandromous fish, when they come into the river, they're looking for the path of least resistance. So if you, uh, you know, once you spend enough time in the river, you can kind of identify the areas where the water is pushing really hard, where if you, like, if you're thinking like a fish, you're swimming up against the current, you're not going to try and, you know, push against the hardest current. You're going to find the slower, easier current to swim up in. So they all kind of pick close to the same kind of lanes to swim up the river. Right. The pill, was this the pillow water? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the pillow or the couch water, some people call it, you know, that's, you know, if you think if, if you're walking up a hill, you're not going to pick the steepest part of the hill to walk up and you're going to 
you know, go up the nice trail that's a lot easier to walk up. So once you learn to identify these kind of places, it makes it a lot easier to find salmon and, uh, you know, put your fly in front of them so they can bite it. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So we got, so we got some of the salmon, the salmonids there we're talking about and let's take it back. So we're thinking, you know, you mentioned a few different species and right now we're in the summertime. So how does that, let's take us through the year a little bit back on that track. So you've got, you know, cutties going on, you've got these other species. How does that look? So July, August, I mean, basically what is your focus? So let's talk about that. Those two months, what are you guys really focusing on? My main focus in like July, August is probably beach fishing for serum cutthroat. It's just, it's something that I don't have to dedicate an entire day to. I can go before work, go after work and just spend a couple hours and have a good time. And it's a good way, especially if you're new to like really dial in your casting, because a lot of time the beaches are pretty wide open. You don't have to deal with back cast issues. And it's, I can't say I've ever run into another person where I go fishing. So good solitude. And a lot of times it can be pretty, pretty action packed. I went a summer, I think in 2021, where I don't think I got skunked once. And it was just an amazing summer, at least one fish. And it wasn't uncommon to get 10, 15 serum cuts over. Right. And the other cool thing about it is it's summertime, right? So you guys are out there hanging out. This isn't like winter. You're in your shorts and just loving the sun and all that. Oh yeah. You can be in a t-shirt and just wet wade. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. So, so you got that going now, as you look in, you know, transition July, August, and then into September, October. Now, what are you guys thinking? Is that switching over to the salmon or what else is going on there? That's really the time of year that I start looking forward to because September, October, that's when you really started getting the big pushes of salmon in. Typically, even late August, we'll start getting some coho in the rivers. And then really September, it really all depends on the weather. You know, if we get some rains in September, it can be pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, the last couple of years, September has been really dry. So it's been kind of uh, tough, you know, figuring out how to uh, navigate the low water. But when you get a big rain in early September, it can be some of the most amazing fishing you've ever had. You know, it's like, you know, maybe not quite Alaska, but... Uh, pretty close if you hit it on the right day yeah what are you fishing what's your you know like what is the gear what type of rod are you using for the kings you know a spay rod for sure um i like uh, a 12 foot nine weight i fish a pirouette renegade the uh the jerry french rod and uh, those i've found for as as far as uh you know like big fish in the river that rod is uh it really performs well. You know, you can fight a really big fish on it. You can have some really heavy stuff, giant flies with it. And it's just an easy, um, it's like a tool. It's like, that's when I sell them to people here in the shop. I talk about, it's like, you know, like a, a Makita rod, like just a, a tool, not like a fancy, you know, really high end rod, but they're reasonably priced and just really, really effective. Yeah. That's the pirouette. And then you're using a, are you using just Skagit lines for that? Typically, yeah, for the salmon, you know, you, you typically want to get it down, especially the kings. It's uh, Although we have heard um, and seen quite a few kings come up and eat flies off the surface, it's definitely not going to be your go-to presentation for uh, targeting kings. You know, you typically want to get it down to their level, and they usually like a, a pretty big fly. Um, although they will eat the small stuff, you know, they'll eat comets and little tiny things that you wouldn't expect but it's really if you really want to get after and get them you want to try and get your uh, your fly to be as close to uh, one of those big giant plugs that the uh, the gear guys fish for yep if they work for the gear if you can kind of come close to imitating something 
similar to yeah the plugs or whatever it is that they that's probably better than going like steelhead sometimes i mean right you can go small depending on the conditions but a small fly can work really well but not with schnook you're not really fishing little tiny stuff well depending on the conditions you definitely can uh you know if the water is really low and clear um the smaller stuff will look better but typically with fly fishing for chinook uh when the water gets low and clear the fish will go and sit and just you know the deepest darkest holes they can find where it's really hard to just get your fly to them so it won't be so much as the, the fly um you know the pattern or the profile of the fly as how much it is to actually get it to the zone where they're likely to bite it right that's the tough part gotcha and so again we're gonna we're gonna touch surface on a lot of these species because i'm kind of interested in just kind of circling around but so for coho do you have you know again i mean coho are known especially up north for really being aggressive and chasing flies have you guys done much of that is that what you see up there for coho fishing yeah it seems like a lot of the people that focus in on coho a lot of the time They'll fish eight weight single handers and kind of strip streamers. A lot of fishing from the boat, you can definitely get them swinging, but a lot of times you're going to want to add some sort of additional action to your fly as it's swinging, whether it be like pulsing your rod or kind of bouncing the fly and add a little bit more of a jigging motion. But typically it's stripping streamers, sink tips, things like that. Yep. Same thing. So for any of those salmon, pretty much you're just getting down, whether, I mean, sockeye pinks all that stuff it's just really you're just getting down to them yeah well the, the pink salmon not so much you know especially if you're fishing them out in the in the salt water uh we've actually we just had a customer in yesterday who really loves fishing uh gurglers for them and uh you know he gets them on the surface pretty consistently but yeah definitely for most of the pacific salmon uh getting down is the name of the game yep getting down right okay and so that's in the fall so when do you so if we're talking September, October, as we zoom around here and then into November, December, let's just take it by a couple months. What is, when is that changing? When are you guys getting out of the salmon thinking about the next thing? Yeah, the salmon, you know, salmon will typically start, uh, you know, depending on the, on the rains, that's the main thing. There's not really a calendar date for it. It's just once the, uh, the rains come back in the fall, that's when the salmon really gets going and it'll typically go, um, you know, until about Thanksgiving, you know, usually around that time of year in November, we'll get some just huge giant rains that will blow the rivers out tremendously. And then after that, you'll get, you know, a couple week period where just the water's too high to even go fish. And then after Thanksgiving, that's typically when we start uh, fishing for steelhead. Oh, right. Yeah. And then the steelhead are, yeah, because up there you guys have, I mean, is there a mix of like hatchery fish, wild fish, or what does that look like as far because sometimes you think of hatchery fish kind of as earlier returning. Is that kind of how it works there? Uh, yeah, totally. That's usually what, um, what we have coming in first after Thanksgiving and the, uh, you know, December, the December to January, that's about the peak of the hatchery steelhead season. And then after that is when the wild fish start showing up. So, you know, you go, November, December, hatchery fish, and then January through March or April, depending on the regulations, that's when the uh, the wild steelhead season will be. Right. So you have a long, yeah, that's a great thing is the steelhead season is long throughout there into the spring. And then when do you give an, I guess, depending on the river, they, some of them close in after March. Um, but when are you switching away from steelhead and thinking like getting ready for kind of late spring and all that stuff? May. May. Yeah, you know, once all the steelhead rivers close, that's where when we uh, switch gears to either starting to beach fish or lake fishing, we have actually some great still water fishing in this area. 
Um, we not that long ago we did a count of just the year-round lakes we have within an hour, hour and a half here from the shop, and we have twelve lakes that are open year-round that are stocked with trout. Um, rainbows. Uh, yeah, rainbows. Some of them have cutthroat, uh, and then they also have you know other species. Some of them have uh, largemouth bass. And that's just the ones that are open year round. If you go into the ones that just have a summer season open late spring through the fall, then, you know, we're closer to 22 lakes wow. within an hour and a half. So there's a, just a ton of opportunity in this area uh, that goes beyond just the anadromous fish. Yeah. And a handful of those lakes, like if winter steelhead fishing is not your thing, some of those lakes fish incredibly well in the wintertime for big trout too. Are these lakes tucked in? You know, because you guys, Port Angeles is at the north tip of the national park, and I'm not sure how far it is, but are these lakes tucked in the national park area, or are they just scattered around? They're kind of scattered. A lot of the ones that are open year-round are in the county east of us, Jefferson County, and they're all pretty accessible and have public launches and areas you can access them. Yep, that's right. Do you guys feel, I mean, we've had, I think you guys have seen some of the Stillwater stuff, you know, Phil Roy's been doing on the podcast, but do you find that the Stillwater is still a new front where not as many people maybe know about it or are they starting to figure out what's going on out there? It's a little niche still. Like a lot of the people that know about the lakes and fish them quite a bit are just a lot of the more older generation that go out in their pontoon boats or float tubes and just like to have a relaxing day on the water, but starting to get more and more, you know, newer people interested in fishing lakes and trying new tactics and learning new things. Right. How do you guys do it when you're fishing the lake up there? What's your, are you bringing a boat or what sort of uh, techniques are you guys doing? You do a little bit of everything or what's that look like? Kind of depends on the lake. Um, a lot of them are pretty heavily wooded. So shore access is limited. So having a boat or a raft or a float tube is pretty essential. And for me, if I fish a lake, I'm 90% of the time fishing a sinking or an intermediate line and stripping streamers or fishing dry flies. Okay. So you get some dry fly action up there. Yeah. More, you know, late spring into summer when some bugs start coming off. But in the wintertime, it's pretty much just chronomids or stripping streamers on a sinking line. Yeah. And what's your uh, boat wise? You're using uh, like a pontoon or what, what are you using out there? I actually have my grandpa's old, uh, old raft that I use. It's an old nine foot like life raft that he built a frame and stuff for. Oh yeah. Life raft. Oh, cool. So this is an old, uh, like, um, I'm trying to picture it now, a life is that, that was just an old brand back in the day. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think it's, it's made by momentum. Oh, momentum. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know which one you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. You built a fishing frame for it with like an anchor system and oarlocks and everything. Oh yeah. Right on. Just out of wood. Yeah. Wood. And he was a machinist. So all the anchor system and oarlocks are machined and welded and put together by him. Oh wow, yeah. So it's nicer. It's it's nicer than the, the one I'm pitching that I that I made as a, a kid. So you guys do have those opportunities. I mean, that's the thing. Is there a, is there a little whitewater contingent up there in that area? Uh, yeah, there's. It's not terribly crazy. There's uh, no class four or class yeah, five. Like some people will say there is. Yeah, some people like to uh, make the whitewater seem bigger, and it's you know you always got to consider like a fisherman's whitewater compared to a, a whitewater person's whitewater is very different. Uh, but yeah, there, there's definitely some rivers and some rapids that can get you in trouble pretty quickly. But for the most part, these rivers are, are pretty easy if you got some experience on the oars. Um, but it's all about the time of year. You know, if you go out there in low flows versus high flows, it's going to be a completely different animal. 
So you just always got to be careful, you know. You, you definitely don't want to just send it not knowing, um, you know, uh, call a, a nearby fly shop or somebody that you know has some experience um, and, you know, just be careful, like, with any river rafting. If you have plans to float a certain section of river, just either if it's, you know, on the peninsula, call us and be like, hey, is this section of river, like, okay at this flow before you just dump your raft in and go for it? And things do change. Trees do fall. There's like we have a couple people a year, you know, go out without knowing, and they are experienced oarsmen, and they still end up getting in trouble. And we had a few people die last year. So just, just be cautious. Yeah, because you guys have you are on these really dynamic river systems, right? They're changing a lot because there's no essentially, yeah, there's no there aren't any dams anymore, right? Up there is that is that the case? Yeah, these are all free running rivers. Yeah, so. Right. Well, that brings us into the spring and I guess like still water fishing, you guys are hitting that kind of, like you said, you can fish that year round. It sounds like Mm -hmm. in some areas. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And that brings us back around until back to the summer. So I guess what else do we want to highlight here from uh, some species perspective? Did we, you mentioned bass, um, any other focus species we haven't talked about or you want to highlight? Well, there's still like, um, the rivers open up again in May generally for spring King, which are notoriously hard to get on the fly, but once the water kind of drops after winter, the trout fishing in spring can be fantastic too. Mm, okay. So, and this is the river, like the smaller stream sort of stuff? Just all like the main peninsula rivers. Okay. And this is cutthroat, but also what are the other trout species you potentially have out there? There's a handful of resident rainbow, but it's mostly going to be cutthroat. Okay. And bull trout, you got a few of those too? In a few of the systems, yeah. Yeah. Bull trout. Okay. Well, I, you know, when I look back on, you know, what we're talking about here, I think, what would I, you know, I always go back to that, right? What would I want to fish for? We, you know, Ed and I, we checked off the steelhead, you know, at least a trip there. But I mean, Chinook is one of those fish that for sure, and the cutthroat, right? That seems like something that'd be really cool. I mean, they're all, they're all great, you know, again, but if you have to start picking, I mean, what do you guys tell somebody if they come into the shop and, uh, you know, and they're kind of maybe like that, they haven't fished for everything and they're thinking, what are the questions you ask to find out to help them out? I mean, it really depends on the fishermen. Like some people want to, they only have a day. They want to go out and they want to just like catch fish on the peninsula or they're the kind of person that's done a bunch of research. They have a very clear idea in their head of what they want to do, how they want to fish and what they want to catch here. Like if someone just comes in very casually, he's like, hey, I have a free afternoon. It's late spring, early summer. I want to go do some fishing. Like, Right. It just depends. So if somebody came in and they were there, you know, whatever in August. And they said, man, I would really love to catch a cutthroat in the salt. What's the first step to that? Let's walk through that a little bit. What are you telling them as far as just getting ready for that sort of thing? It sounds like you can go and just explore, but like talk gear, you know, maybe some tips on finding fish. Yeah. There's a handful of beaches that I know that time of year can be productive that, you know, I have no problem like pointing out to a map and like telling them like a good jumping off point. And typically, like, the setup for sea on cutthroat fishing is pretty straightforward. If you're traveling with fly fishing gear, there's a chance you'll have what you need. Like, anywhere from... Nine foot, five weight, whatever, stuff like that is fine. Yeah, a five to a seven weight with a floating line. And then you can probably pick three or four flies, and that's all you'll need. What are the three flies? A go-to, if I haven't been to a beach before, is a Delia's Conehead Squid. It's very simple pattern that just is very suggestive of quite a few things and seems to work very well or um any sort of sculpin pattern whether it be like your classic muddler minnow or we carry a fly that we really like called the wounded sculpin it's a micro pine squirrel ice dub with a a bead head 
And I've probably honestly caught more cutthroat on that fly than any other, and that's saltwater lake or river. And um, even if you have a lighter rod, it's still doable just for fun. I went out the other day with a six foot nine three weight fiberglass rod and a small bait fish pattern and ended up catching a bunch of cutthroat on that. So don't feel like you need a saltwater specific setup. Like pretty much anything's going to be fine as long as you take the proper care of it afterwards. Clean your stuff. And you're never really waiting more than ankle or knee deep on a lot of the beaches. Oh, okay. Right. So when you get to the beach, you just find some beach you think looks good. Or is there a specific type of beach? Are you looking for the structure where you say, hey, this is more rocks? Yeah. Um, you know, softball sized rocks, some sort of structure and cover. Um, points are always good near creek mouths and moving water, whether it be an incoming or an outgoing tide. You def- don't really want to fish the slack tide. It doesn't seem to be as productive. And um, the only other like piece of specialty gear I would definitely recommend having is a stripping basket. Because especially on an incoming tide, a lot of the beaches, the incoming tide will bring a lot of seaweed in. And the second your line touches that, it's like a magnet and it'll be all over it. So having a stripping basket's very nice to keep your line out of the water. And what was the one? The one you recommended in the viral video, right? That What was that one? Uh, the Arex Plexi Stripper. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very stripped down. It's basically just a plastic platform with flexible spikes that kind of keep your line organized and untangled. And it's comfortable to wear all day. It's lightweight. A lot of the other ones are a little bit bigger and more cumbersome. And some of them are made out of hard plastic. And if you're fishing and not paying attention, at least with me personally, I end up like getting really into it and stripping fast and smashing my hand on it, which is really unpleasant. Right. <laughs> so with this A-Rex one, can you like literally, is it flexible enough you could like just like lay on it, sleep on it sort of thing? Would it be that flexible? I mean, you would notice it, but it's just very stripped down, very bare bones, like just like the essential recipe you need to keep your line off the water and make sure you can shoot all your line when you cast without really having to worry about it. That's perfect. Okay. So that's a key piece of gear. And when you're on the beach in ankle deep, so what's the cast where are you just casting? How, you know, you say you see some structure, are you casting and stripping or what are you letting it sink a little bit? Yeah. So generally like you'll be however deep you want to wade in the water. And a lot of times like it doesn't take too long before you'll start seeing some signs of fish, whether it be birds on bait within casting distance or fish actively on the surface. But if you don't see anything, usually start your cast to like a nine o'clock position, cast as comfortably far as you can and strip your fly in and strip it all the way in until your leader is like through your top guide because I've gotten countless fish that close to me. And then make a few casts and then, you know, work the clock face, do another couple casts at 10 o'clock, noon, one. And then if you don't see anything, take 10, 20 steps down the beach and just repeat. And generally like, once you find fish, there'll be more than one. So you can kind of stay in that place until it dies down and then just keep covering water. Mm-hmm. And what's a typical size for a, a cutthroat you're catching out there? Anywhere from, they range greatly, but anywhere from eight inches to 20 inches on a really good day. Oh, right. Yeah. 20 inches would be a big cutty sea run. Yeah. Like it's a mixed bag. There'll be days where you'll get five or six in the nine to 12 inch range and then a couple like nice 16 inch fish. And that's because these fish are mostly, you know, they're essentially migrating out into the, yeah, just into the estuary. They're not really going out to the ocean. That's why they're not getting up to 10 pounds like a steelhead. Yeah. I mean, they, they can, like I haven't personally, but I've talked to quite a few people that will be out trolling for coho or Chinook and catch cutthroat like miles offshore. Oh, okay. Yeah. A few trickle out there. Yeah. All right. Well, and so that that's the cutthroat. And it sounds like it's fairly straightforward, which is probably one of the reasons why it's fun. And like we talked, the sun, you're on the beach, you're kicking back probably with an adult beverage or two, right? If you want it. Yeah, or just, six. 
or say, <laughs> right. There's no limit. There's no, what's your time when you guys get out there? What's too early to, to drink a beer when you're on the, like a day off? Uh, it's 5.30 a.m. <laughs> I, always, I, always I always used to use the, uh, the 10 a.m. I, I said, you know, if, if I wait at least till 10, then I'm probably, I'm, I'm a non-alcoholic. I'm probably good, right? On the river. If you catch a fish before 6 a.m., there's nothing stopping you from having a beer. There you go. That's why I agree. I like that. I like that. Good. Okay. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, anything else on the cutties that we want to, I know we're not doing the full deep dive, but as far as just if somebody again is listening here and they're going to think about doing this, anything else you want to highlight? We got fly, I guess leaders pretty standard, like just like seven, eight foot leader sort of thing. Yeah. And it, they're not typically very leader shy. There are a few people that will fish 12 foot leaders. I do now if I have one, just because I like to think it gives me an edge, but I've also caught plenty of fish on like a five foot piece of flat eight pound mono and what's cool about fishing the salt water is yeah you are targeting cutthroat but it's the salt water there's so many different species in there you never exactly know what you're going to catch oh right yeah what else what else would you catch big sculpin i've caught small lingcod off the beach depending on the time of the year you'll either catch a pink salmon or a coho or a chum huh you can catch black rockfish or kelp greenwing flounder wow i've heard of a few people catching a spiny dogfish the sharks we have here Dang, that is really cool. We've got one customer, uh, Steve, who's a great friend of ours. And What's he's, up, Steve? He's the uh, Starry <laughs> Flounder Master. Uh, you know, Starry Flounder, they're like a, a small halibut. Oh, right. And this guy catches them all the time, <laughs> which is pretty cool. You know, apparently they fight pretty good. Wow. That's, yeah, it seems like how would you catch? You definitely have to be down on the bottom for those, right? Because aren't they kind of down or no? Yeah. And generally, like more sandy, but. He uh, found the tactic, which is getting a tangle in your running line and letting your fly sit on the bottom for a few minutes while you untangle it. Oh, there you go. That's what it is, right? So just let it sit there, just like trickle it, like slowly drag it along the bottom or something like that. And generally, like if you find yourself catching a lot of sculpins, strip faster because your fly is either too slow or too close to the bottom. Right, right. And what is the strip? What's the strip for cutties? If what is there a, a cadence of stripping or type is like fast, slow? Or... It kind of depends on the fly you're fishing. Like if you're fishing a sculpin imitation, you want it to be pretty fast and erratic, and I'd say nervous. Nervous, wounded. Yeah, <laughs> and like I'll, I kind of fall into my own cadence of like pretty short, quick strips with whatever fly I'm fishing, just because that's what my muscle memory goes to, and it seems to be pretty effective. But if you're fishing like the Milwaukee beach popper, like a gurgler or some other like foam surface fly. Some people fish them pretty fast and erratic, but a lot of times like a slow, consistent long strip with a pause kind of look like, you know, a bait fish that's been injured and it's on the surface on its side. And it's just like trying to make it. Yeah. That's another thing that's really fun about cutthroat fishing. You know, you'll, you'll go fish with some people and everybody's got kind of a different style as how they uh, present the fly or how they strip. And it all works at certain times. Like, for example, Kyle will have a more, like, relaxed tempo to his strip. And, uh, you know, I typically, when I'm fishing for cutthroat, I'll be stripping like I'm uh, shaking a thermometer or something, you know, just real hmm. fast, as fast as I can, really. And there will be days where he catches more. There will be days where I catch more. It just varies on the day and the fish. Typically, Kyle catches more than I do, but that's uh, yeah. <laughs> neither here nor there. <laughs> It's probably good to mix it up, kind of like steelhead fishing. You got a couple guys. It's good. Maybe one guy goes through with a, you know, heavier line, another guy with a lighter line, right, to find out where they're at and find the fish, find the bucket in the run, right. That's kind of what it's like. Yeah, totally. Another fun thing about cutthroat is like the variation in flies that are effective is there's no limit. Like I've tied stuff that I think's 
the stupidest looking fly. What would that be? What would be the weirdest fly you've caught a cutthroat on? Oh man. I don't know. Just like basically almost a bear hook, with like a small piece of mop on the back of it, just because the whole mop fly thing's just been blowing up. I'm like, well, I got to try it at least once. And it worked great. Yep. The mop fly. Yeah. Or like incredibly sparse bait fish, like a lit, like two strands of crystal flash and like a little bit of squirrel tail. Yep. Super sparse. Just like the hook in there. Yeah. If they're in a feeding mood, like if something goes in front of them, good chance they'll take it. And what's fun about them too, is if you do get a strike and you miss it, like cast right back at that same fish and there's a really good chance he'll take it again. I've cast the same fish four times before I hooked it. They're very forgiving. Yeah. And they're feeding on that's thing. They're not really eating bugs. I mean, these fish are, they're eating other fish and creatures. Yeah. Or, so they will at, at certain times of the year. You know, that's another, um, yet another really cool thing about uh, sea run cutthroat or coastal cutthroat. At certain times of the year, uh, especially on beaches where there's a lot of wood debris or just a lot of wood up on the beach, uh, you'll get uh, termite hatches that uh, blow out on the ocean. So these actually, these uh, you know, these trout in the salt water will key into dry flies at certain times. You know, so there's kind of a hatch there. Uh, but for the most part, it'll definitely be uh, their, you know, natural uh, marine forage, whether it be sculpins or herring or other smaller bait fish. Um, right, right. So it's pretty diverse. This is cool. And I'm just looking at the diversity of this area. If you look generally at where you guys are at, I mean, you're right. Kind of. Do you guys get up to Victoria very often? Is that something where you can just kind of stroll across the sea over there? Uh, yeah, we've got a, a ferry uh, right here in town. It's actually just a block away from the shop uh, that can take you to Victoria, and it's only about an hour and a half ferry ride to get up there. Uh, and I've been up there quite a bit, but never really fishing, just kind of sightseeing and going to town. You know, Victoria is a much bigger city than Port Angeles, so it's got a lot of those uh, big city amenities that we don't really have um, here in town. Right, right. That's it. On that ferry, is that just like an hour ferry ride across something like that? Yeah, it's about an hour and a half. Yeah, and you got the San Juan Island. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, what is it when you guys living up there? Obviously, you're dialed into the fishing, but are you, I mean, it seems like there's a lot going on just from the natural, right? That whole area, the San Juan Islands, you got Seattle's just around the corner. Does it feel like a pretty diverse area to live in or do you guys have a lot going on? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's tons, you know, just outside the fishing, there's a lot of uh, hunting opportunities around here. Uh, and also the hiking, the hiking in, in uh, Olympic National Park uh, is, is really something, you know, it's all these mountains and all these different trails that you can do. And it's just endless. You know, you could spend a lifetime and never see it all. There's about 600 miles of trails within the park, everything from two mile day hikes to 40, 50 mile backpacking trips. And whether it's to like, you know, the headwaters of rivers up to these big basins full of alpine lakes or through the rainforest. There's lots of coastal beaches you can hike and camp on. And that's what everybody, yeah, the majority, like you said, the million people, a lot of them are coming up in the summer this time of year and uh, and doing all that, right? They're checking out. What is the national park? When you think about the Olympics, I mean, people are coming in, you know, I guess the hiking and stuff. It's just the mountain. Is that what it is? These peaks are so amazing that that's kind of what's drawing people. Like if you're on one of those tourist buses, where are those tourist buses, where are they stopping? It's just the diversity of the park because it goes from you know, temperate rainforest to these wild coastal beaches to mountains to rivers. There's just a lot of different diversity and a lot of different things you can see and do. Unlike a lot of other national parks where you're inside one national park and it's a lot of the same terrain throughout, but here there's just so much diversity. And like one end of the park is so different than the other end. Because you can be on, you know, 
one of the coastal beaches on the southwestern side of the park with like big sea stacks and rocks and just looks like a place where a pirate ship would crash. And then, <laughs> you know, 40 minutes later, you're in the middle of a moss covered, unbelievably green rainforest with a glacial river running through it. And then the next minute you're on, you know, the top of a mountain peak looking out over the entire peninsula. Right. Yeah, that would be fun. I can see just that. Just hiking around would be a great weekend or week mm -hmm. doing that. And then, like you said, you could throw in the rod, throw in the pack rod, probably find some little, you know, streams in the right conditions or lakes. Yeah, and pretty much all the alpine lakes have, most of them have brook trout. There's a handful that have rainbow in them. And they're usually pretty full of fish and like pretty eager. I remember a friend of mine was telling me about the Olympic. I never did it, but he used to hike the Olympic you know, there was some trail system right on the beach. He said it was really amazing, pretty extreme, I guess. That sounds like another thing, right? Throw the rod in, do some hiking along the beach, and probably get one of those remote areas and just take the rod and go for it. That'd probably be a good plan for a weekend. Yeah, definitely. There's those um, those beach hikes over on the on the west side of the peninsula. The, you know, the west end of the uh, the national park. Um, there's several uh, you know multi day backpacking hikes you can do over there, and there's some really awesome surf perch fishing over there. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. I'm going to have to remember now the surf perch episode. We, let's just highlight for those that didn't uh, check that episode out. Let's talk just for a second on surf perch. What are we, you guys remember what we covered on that one? I'm trying to think back in a, a year ago. I think we covered surf perch. Yeah. <laughs> we covered pretty much everything you could about surf perch. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make it easy for everybody and find the episode. Yeah. It was um, 337. So yeah, that would get it right back to that. And and yeah, I think that uh, surf perch, I mean, what is the, what other species are out there like surf perch? Are there other species that you could catch that are kind of like that? I mean, you mentioned maybe a few of them, but what is the surf perch more, what other species are like a surf perch out there? In certain marine areas, like if you head more um, like northwest of Port Angeles where we are, like the CQ Neobay area, there's a black rockfish, which can be an absolute blast on a fly. Oh, yeah. And there's some, um, it's a lot easier if you have a boat but there are like a lot of areas where there's like rock jetties and places that are public where you can go and fish them. Yeah. Cause you need deeper though. Rockfish are kind of in the deep, a little bit deeper water off rocks and jetties. That's the idea. It depends. Like a lot of times they'll hang out in the like kelp beds right offshore. And it's not uncommon like to see them up on the surface, like pushing bait around and you can catch them on poppers when you can get a six to 10 pound black rockfish on a popper. Jeez. 10 pound. That would be nuts. Yeah. They're fun. And like, Around here, I've fished for them mainly at night with like a five weight. And they're small, like 12 inches is a big one. But on a five weight, like they put up a hell of a fight and they'll try and pull you down into the rocks and all over the place. Mm, right. Yeah. And they're good eating, right? Can you keep some of those rockfish? In seasonal and in, depending on the marine area, you just have to check regulations for where you're going to be. Okay. And if anybody is getting, you know, wanting some flies or tying, like, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause you guys have a pretty, I think we talked about that on the first episode. I think, you know, about how diverse your fly tying, you know, the material selection reminds again on that. I think Ed, you might've mentioned that, like how, when you came into the shop that was kind of known for some of the unique materials, uh, tell us what you got, what's going on with your fly tying stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a huge part of our shop. I'd say, uh, you know, about half, maybe more of the shop here is fly tying materials because, you know, just when you're chasing all these different species and different, uh, different bodies of water and just different types of water, uh, you know, eventually after you've been doing it for a while, you kind of realize that a lot of the flies that you can just go and get at the store, they're not quite exactly what you need. 
So that's, uh, you know, some big part of what Waters West has been geared to is just, uh, you know, enabling the people that are really, really into fishing to have the flies that they actually need to catch the fish that they want. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times that means tying your own fly uh, to the exact specifications that you need. And so we have a ton of different materials for just about everything you'd want to tie from, you know, size 20 dry flies to musky flies, uh, you know, big intruders, which is obviously a, a huge thing yeah, here. Big bass poppers. Uh, bass poppers. You know, we've got uh, just about everything for fly tying. We probably have one of the bigger assortments of in-store tying material on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And that covers both. Uh, I mean, it's hard to, because you hear a lot about the chain, right? There's a lot more synthetics and there's all, I mean, how do you guys keep up with it? Because it seems like that's maybe one of the challenges. How are you, how are you making sure you're on top of all the, the new stuff, materials and things like that? Well, a lot of times if something new comes out, we'll order for ourselves and then mess around with it. And if it's a material that we see being beneficial to other people or we really like, we'll bring it in. We tend to not really care anything that is new and flashy and gimmicky unless we tried it first and know that it's actually like worth its salt. Like we don't, I don't want to try and sell someone a material that I don't stand by personally, unless it's like, you know, way outside my niche of tying and it is, you know, a proven good material. And yeah, we'll definitely carry it. Yeah. And you know, it can be tough at times in the, in the fly finishing industry. There's just, you know, so many, so much gimmicky stuff coming out all the time. And like, well, is this actually something that's good? That's going to, um, you know, help you tie flies better or catch more fish or is it just another thing that somebody came out with so we try to actually evaluate all this stuff and like put it to work and see if it's actually um you know worth carrying because we only have so much room yeah and you have a pretty decent sized shop i mean in there i think that was surprising i don't know you know the square footage or whatever but yeah i mean it's a huge that one half is the fly tie and the other half you have like a you know normal all the the great gear and stuff are you guys also hey you have a flight tying table there too or could people come in and stop by and tie a few flies up totally yeah and we do like the second thursday of every month doors are open from five to seven if anyone wants to come by and just hang out and tie flies with us oh nice so the second thursday mm-hmm. perfect yeah so you have that uh you got the tying night going and then uh how does that work? Because I remember back in the shop, I grew up around a little tiny shop back in the day. And uh, I remember we'd just, uh, you know, we, we'd grab some materials off the off the wall and, and take note. Are you guys able? Is that kind of how it looks? Or do you guys have this giant pile of in the back room of materials that you're using? Or- it's more like just bring your own vice and materials and hang out. And like, you know, if there is something you need, we'll help you out. Perfect. Yeah. And what about, let's go into the hooks and stuff. We talked about A-Rex, but... Uh, do you guys have like a, an assortment of different hooks uh, at the shop? Uh, yeah, definitely. We've got a uh, you know a huge wall just full of hooks from a bunch of different brands. Uh, the ARX hooks, which uh, you know if we love. Uh, we've got Gamakatsu owner um, Aqua hooks, Kimco, Daiichi. Uh, you know, just all kinds of different ones. And we don't have every hook that every of these manufacturers makes, but we've got. Uh, We've definitely got hooks to cover just about every situation. Right. And what would be the weird, I'm trying to think of the, well, I think it's some of the still water stuff. We didn't get into it, but like Phil Roy with the balanced leech and all, all that sort of stuff. Do you guys get into the, the still water, all that as well? Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've got the hooks for those. You know, we even have the, uh, the pins for balanced leeches. Uh, if it's a balanced leech, you know, that's a, that's a great pattern and, and the various different colors for still water. It's, it's tough to beat. I mean, we'll have everything from, 
four-aught saltwater hooks down to size 22 dry fly hooks and a little bit of everything in between. Yeah. Do you guys have uh, in tools and what, like vices, all that stuff? Yep. Everything you need. Yeah. What's your, um, we just had uh, Lily Renzetti on and I heard the story. I mean, they're like 50 years. It was pretty cool to hear that. They're kind of out in Florida, but do you guys have a mix? What are the, what do you guys use to tie on? As far as vices go, we mainly carry Renzetti and Regal. I think Kyle and I both have Renzetti vices. Yeah. And actually my Renzetti vice was a hand-me-down from when I first started fly tying. And I think it's about 35 years old and it's still going with the same original parts. So, uh, Oh, wow. Is this the Traveler? Uh, yep, the Traveler. That's right. Yeah, shout out to Renzetti. Awesome stuff. That's good stuff. Yeah, that's what Lily was saying. She told the whole story back. I think they started, yeah, it's been over 50 years. And uh, and that's part of the thing. They built such a good vice. You know, he was a machinist. But, uh, that yeah, they don't really get, you know, once you buy one, that's it. You could have that thing for life pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so vices. So let's circle back on the species. We we did our kind of the circle around, you know, throughout the year. Anything else we want to touch on that we haven't highlighted? You mentioned bass. Do we want to dig into that a little bit? Yeah, we have a, a friend. He, he's a school teacher, but he works for us in the summertime. And he's bass crazy, to say the least. And he's scouted pretty much every lake he can get to and fish and pretty much spends his whole summer fishing largemouth four days a week probably. Right. And largemouth, are there smallmouth there as well? Um, no, it's going to be mostly largemouth. Okay. So it's mostly lakes, largemouth. Yeah. And most of them are going to be in Jefferson County. So all of them are about 45 minutes to an hour uh, east of us. And I mean, it's not Texas. It's not Florida. They're not huge. But, you know, there are some lakes that have four to six pound bass. And seeing them take, you know, a nice Dahlberg diver off the surface is exciting no matter what size it is. Right. And is that another one of those species and fisheries that's kind of not as well known out there? In For fly fishing, yeah. There is a lake close-ish to us where a lot of people fish it with conventional gear for bass, but you rarely see someone else fly fishing for bass around here. Okay. Yeah. So I guess uh, bass, I mean, I, I was kind of thinking of going back, we talked a little on Cutthroat. I was thinking about the uh, that Chinook, especially since that's going to be right around the corner. Do you guys expect, I mean, especially we're seeing some you know, some downturns in Chinook, at least you, know, you hear about them up in Alaska. Do you guys expect the fishing, there will be a run that you guys can fish for this year? Uh, it should be open, um, you know, to fishing for Chinook. It's um, it's hard to say. Uh, we don't really know. It really depends a lot on the weather. You know, like right now we're kind of in a drought here on the peninsula. So there's actually quite a few rivers that are closed due to uh, the low flows. The entire Quileute system is closed at the moment, which is a, is a huge bummer. But, um, you know, it's pretty much just waiting for rain. Once the rains come back and the flows come back up, the river should be back open. And, uh, yeah, we, we typically get a, a pretty good uh, Chinook return here on the coast. So it's it's really just a matter of uh, the rains coming back. Yep, which usually happens in uh, typically in September. Well, I mean, you never know when you might get rain, but it seems like the heavy rains could happen potentially in mid-September, something like that. Yeah, typically mid to late September. Sometimes it'll go, like last year, it wasn't until late October. Um, so that was kind of tough. It's been but, a huge rain late October last yeah, year. Yeah, but then late October, the rain showed up, and then the, the salmon fishing in November was just amazing because they were all just out there waiting for rain, and then the second it rained, they all rushed in and we had, uh, you know, a few weeks of just amazing salmon fishing. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I, I find, you know, as I've been doing these episodes around the country, you know, you hear about, you know, the, the drought, I mean, it's not just specific to the Olympic peninsula, 
You know, I mean, I've talked to people on the other side of the country, out in Maine, and people on all the ends talking about, you know, just looking ahead, right? And without becoming a downer, you know, that's one of those things. You guys think of that, like looking ahead. I mean, um, I guess you're kind of doing it now where some of these other species are becoming, you know, maybe more popular because it's the only thing that's open. But what's your look at that? Do you guys feel like, do you stay optimistic uh, looking at this stuff or, or do you kind of think about, well, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I think you really have to stay optimistic, you know, because ultimately it is the weather and uh, you can't really control it, despite what some uh, people in the conspiracies might say. <laughs> right. But uh, it's uh, and you never know, you know, we'll have we'll have some years where um, it's really wet and really rainy and then we'll have a few years where it's really dry. So you can't really feel like it's just, you know, like everything you know, the world is boiling and it's all over because then you'll, the next year will come around and it'll be different. So yeah, you really have to stay optimistic because otherwise you just, you know, just get to thinking that everything's doomed and that's not good for anybody. Yeah. Doom and gloom. Yeah. And it feels like it did rain actually this year quite a bit. You know, I think during the, we definitely got some rain. It feels like earlier this year. Do you remember that when it was like, Hey, this is, it's actually raining a lot or, or has it been pretty dry throughout the year? Yeah, we actually had a pretty dry, even in the, in the winter and the spring, uh, we didn't really get the typical huge rains that we usually do. Um, you know, we had pretty low water throughout the winter season. Spring was super low. Yeah, spring was, was really dry as well. Uh, we actually had a crazy heat wave back in May, which was really rare. You know, we got almost 100 hmm. degrees in May. Oh, right. And that's that's kind of why we're in the situation that we're in, because that heat wave melted most of our snowpack, and then we just got stuff that was left over. And, uh, you know, so now all the rivers are super low. Right, right, right. No, I'm with you guys. I think it's just like like anything, yeah, there's fluctuations, and, uh, and you just kind of have to stick with it and, uh, you know, do your best. There's probably some some work we could all be doing. And, you know, and I just got off the call. We we're, we're heading out back to um, – kind of towards the uh, Great Lakes. And I was talking to one of the conservation groups there that, um, you know, is protecting lands. You know, that's what they do. They basically purchase lands and, you know, keep them from getting developed. Yeah. Do you guys find in your area, it seems like you are kind of, I mean, you're not Seattle. I mean, you know, Seattle is probably, what, a few hour drive from you guys. But, I mean, you're in a pretty, I mean, what would you call it? Do you feel like it's pretty remote? Like there's not a lot of development going on around you? Yeah, I'd say that there's definitely not a lot of re development. I wouldn't say it's quite remote because you can, you know, just get in your car and drive here from Seattle. It's only two and a half hours, so it's not really remote. It's definitely rural, uh, not very developed, and there's um, there's just not that um, much land to develop because there's so many mountains. Uh, so that you know, kind of limits itself as well. Right. Yeah, it's mountainous, and yeah, of course, national park. Nobody's developing there, right. Right? and that's the only. That's just right behind the national park. Does it start just right behind? Well, the Elwha, you got the Elwha, which is right near you guys too, right? Yeah. Which was a, a big uh, project. Again, so there's stuff going on. I mean, and people aren't just, you know, I mean, there's definitely some cool work going on around you guys. Yeah, there's definitely, there's a lot of uh, conservation work and habitat restoration. You know, like you mentioned, the Elwha. The Elwha was, um, was still kind of is the largest river restoration in the history of the United States. Um yeah, because that was a massive, like a giant dam. How big was that? It was like a what, hundreds of feet, right? The Glines Canyon Dam was 210 feet, and I believe the Elwha Dam, the lower one, was 110. And they've been there for over 100 years. Right. I remember hearing something about, I think uh, maybe, 
think maybe it was John that was talking about it, uh, the steelhead, that after they removed it, they didn't really do much, and they already had, like, within the first year or two steelhead. I mean, I can't remember the years, but there were fish coming back, you know, on their own. Yeah, right after they took the dams down, and now we've got, um, you know, again, all five species of Pacific salmon going well past where the dam sites were. So it's, it's pretty remarkable to see uh, just how quickly the fish come back and just, you know, nature gets back on course after it's left to do um, what it's supposed to do. Right. And the Elwha, we haven't been talking names much, but the Elwha is a pretty huge name. I think anybody, you know, can search and see that. But is that something where people, I guess, it, can you fish that river? Is that open to fishing? No, it's been it's been completely close to all fishing, including tribal harvest uh, since the dams came down. And it's, uh, you know, it's kind of the thing where everybody here in town is just like, oh, maybe this year it'll come back here. And there's been room, you know, the last few years there's been building rumors that it's getting closer and closer. Um, but we still don't have any, uh, you know, a concrete opening date for it, but we, we're definitely all looking forward to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Because most of the stuff like the drive we did, you know, we took a long drive, right. Around and, and down to get to a lot of the rivers that a lot of people would hear know of. So that's kind of what you have to do. There's not really on the national park. You're not really going, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of rivers draining out towards the east. Is that the case or are there some fishing opportunities on the east side of the national park? Um, yeah, there's, uh, so, you know, the national park spans pretty much the whole peninsula right in the center of it. And it's, uh, it makes it, um, quite a bit different from a lot of the other national parks where you can't just really drive through it and access the whole park. You have to drive around and there's just these different, um, like fingers where you can access it. So, you know, you can access it over on the east side, on the north side or the west side. And these will take you all very different areas. Uh, but there definitely are some rivers over on the east side of the peninsula that, uh, you know, they're mainly for trout fishing. The anadromous populations and those are, are pretty depleted, um, you know, all kinds of stuff that I won't get into. And they're, you know, they're typically closed during the, the times where the salmon or the steelhead will be in there. But the, uh, the trout fishing in the summertime can be really great on those east side rivers as well. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Well, let's see. Anything else we want to touch on here before we uh, we take it out of here? Um, well, there there is one uh, particular, um, I would say, jewel that we haven't really mentioned that that's in the national park, uh, and that's Lake Crescent. You know, I, I really don't hesitate to mention it because it is just so huge and, and prevalent here. You know, it's like if you drive through the peninsula, you will drive by Lake Crescent, and that is a really special place. It's a pretty unique lake. It used to be a river, and then there was a, a landslide, I think, about 10,000 years ago that blocked it off. So now it's this big, uh, like, valley canyon that filled up with water, and it's uh, it's over 700 feet deep. They actually don't know exactly how deep it is because when they tried to measure the depth, the equipment only went down to 700 feet. Yeah, I think the listed official depth is, like, 632. Wow. Which still makes it the, like, I think, 14th deepest lake in the United States. Jeez. And it's absolutely crystal clear like on a good day if you're in a boat you can see the bottom at almost 100 feet oh amazing and it's just sheer drops like we were out fishing it and uh, the guy we were with had electronics and the bow of the boat was in about nine or ten feet of water and the stern was i think 120 yeah and it has two species of, of trout that are endemic to just that lake huh what are those there's the beardsley which is a rainbow trout subspecies and the crescente cutthroat oh wait, what was the first one beardsley oh, okay Beardsley, right. Yeah, I've heard of that. Okay. And then actually our state record cutthroat is from that lake. It's 12 pounds. Oh, wow. And the Beardsley get substantially larger. Gotcha. Lake Crescent. Yeah. Perfect. 
Nice. Well, I think uh, I think we'll I have one more question for you guys. I'm always interested. You know, if somebody's coming up there. If they were uh, on their, if they're going to swing by Port Angeles, is there a, a restaurant, some local food you'd recommend on the, you know after they get done fishing? Um, yeah, there's there's definitely quite a few. Um, you know, like again, it's not a not a big city, but there's some pretty good uh, uh, food options here in town. Um, one of our favorites is uh, Spruce. It's a bar, but it's also a restaurant called Spruce. Uh, that place has really great food. Um, there's also a new fish and crab check that just opened in town over on the wharf. We just went there yesterday and that, that was pretty oh, good, nice. which is nice. Cause you would think that being here on the coast, we'd have lots of great seafood options, but we really don't. Uh, it seems most of our seafood just gets exported. Yeah. Um, but it, it really is nice to, uh, you know, have that crab shack there in town on Sundays. You can go there and get a, a whole Dungeness crab and fries for $20, oh, uh, which is, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. No relation to the Crab Shack. We just really like it. <laughs> yeah, the cra- right, the Crab Shack. Right across the street, basically, there's a, a brewery and a pizza place called Bar Hop. Yeah, it's dog friendly. They have outdoor seating. You can go get a really nice pizza and some like locally crafted beer. Oh, good. Bar Hop. Yeah, yeah. And you guys are in Port Angeles. I mean, it is uh, a Port Hub. I mean, is it? Is there a lot? Is that what it's all about? Is there still a lot of the kind of all the commerce and lots of boats coming in there? Yeah, I mean, there's a handful of like commercial fishing vessels that come out, but a lot of what our port is, is uh, barges and tankers coming in for repair. And then there's a Coast Guard base here too. And, you know, we get cruise ships that port here for a couple of days. Right, right, right. Cool, guys. Well, I think this has uh, given us another little uh, little snapshot into uh, your neck of the woods. Um, you know, we will definitely circle back around with you and check in. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll choose one of these species for the next one. I think um, it's impossible to cover everything. Yeah, it, no, I, it is. It's impossible. But I think the great thing is, is that there are, you know, throughout the year, there's a lot of opportunities there. So we'll, we'll send everybody out, like we said, to uh, waterswest.com or just have them swing by and check in with you guys if they're heading that way. And uh, yeah, thanks for all your time today. Looking forward to uh, getting the next one together and keep in touch with you guys. Yeah, thanks again, Dave. It's been always been fun. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. Okay. Hey, I just want to do a little preface. I've got a little bonus uh, read uh, that I want to share with you. I have been watching the Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War, and uh, and this speech was pretty powerful to me. This is where um, this is right after the uh, Gettysburg, the Great Battle at Gettysburg, and the Civil War, where so many people lost their lives, and uh, and Abraham Lincoln came back to Gettysburg to read this speech and uh, and it was very short there was actually somebody who went on before him and i think it was a 2 hour speech he came in with this 2 minute speech and everybody agreed that this is so powerful 
and uh, and it's just I had to read it. So this is a unique one. I hope you enjoy this. I hope it inspires you. Um, I'm not, you know, I haven't always been the, you know, obviously I love our country, but I haven't always been as patriotic, I guess, as maybe I could. But this is the sort of stuff that inspires me to appreciate the people that have come before us and that have paved the way and have given us a free country to do the things that we love and to be with the people that we love. So I just, um, yeah, this is my way of sharing this and and uh, so let's get into it. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to this unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us. That from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Abraham Lincoln, November 19th, 1863. 